Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. What a beautiful song. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we left off. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open, up, open it to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 4 through 10 this morning. We've been working through this short New Testament letter. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in London back in the mid-1900s, called the chapter that we're in right now the most terrible and terrifying chapter in the Bible. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Remember, the context is Paul wanting to guard the church from false teaching, remind the church that even though the world is seemingly spinning out of control, that Jesus is coming back. And in chapter 2, he's really in the heart of his argument where he's wanting to assure the church that these false teachers that are plaguing the church will surely be judged. And that's the context of our text that we're going to look at in just a moment. As you're finding that, let me mention that although the youth is not meeting tonight, we will be doing our Colossians study tonight at 6 p.m. We've been working through the New Testament letter of Colossians, and so I'd love for you to join us. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. It's one of the most important passages, I think, in the New Testament doctrinally about who Christ is and what He has done for us. And so, I'm really excited about tonight, Uh, and so join us. Even if you haven't been at the last few, you can jump in tonight. We'll be here at 6 o'clock. I'll be teaching, and we'll be done probably an hour and 15 minutes, so I'd love for you to join us tonight. Also, before we get into the text, um, I'm I'm just really sad to report to you some, some very sad news in our city today that Pastor Andy Merritt of Edgewood Baptist Church passed away early this morning. Pastor Andy was a longtime pastor at Edgewood, and he recently contracted the coronavirus and succumbed after about a three-week battle with COVID. If you know or have been around Columbus for some time, you know the fruitfulness and legacy of this brother's ministry. He has 10 children. In fact, one of his children is Carrie Strickland, who's married to Rob Strickland, who's the pastor of a Highland Community Church there in Bibb City and has started Truth Spring, and he has several other children in ministry and just a wonderful, wonderful family. Um, as I understand it, years ago, uh, Pastor Andy was the spearhead in beginning the Crisis Pregnancy Center ministry really nationwide. And so what we now have, know of as Sound Choices which is a wonderful resource center for women in crisis pregnancies. That started here in Columbus under his leadership, and that gave birth to a wonderful ministry across the nation. And so think about the countless lives that have been ministered to and spared and how the Lord used Pastor Andy to start that. And then just faithful preaching of the gospel in this great church, which has been a beacon of light in our city. So before we get into our text this morning, I want us to pray for the Merritt family, for the Edgewood family. This is a dear, wonderful church. Um, My future daughter-in-law, who will be my daughter-in-law in in about a month and a half, grew up there at Edgewood. And many of you uh, have been helped and encouraged and blessed by the ministry of Pastor Andy and Edgewood through the years. So let's pray for God's grace to this family in this church that we love. Lord, we remember Job's words that you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, certainly we are deeply saddened at the passing of this dear, faithful, and fruitful brother. We pray for his wife and ten children and for the innumerable people that he has impacted in his many years of faithful ministry here in our city. And Lord, even as we are very sad, we're just amazed at the way that you used one 
obedient life to bring such good to your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for Pastor Andy's life. Imagine, Lord, the, the, the joy that he felt when he stood. Thank you, Lord, for that well done, good and faithful servant that he heard in the wee hours of this morning. Lord, thank you that all of that was grace, and thank you for the way you made him, and thank you for the way that you used him. Lord, bless that church family, bless that that Merritt family as they mourn. We do not understand, but someday we will. And all of our opinions and all of our reckonings will line up with yours, and we shall say that you have done good. So, Lord, bless this church. Fortify the saints of Edgewood and the dear family members. And we pray it all for your glory and for the fruit of the gospel. And now as we look at this text, Lord, help us. We need your help. We're distracted. We're confused. We're anxious. We need your help. Minister to us through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read our text, starting in verse 4. Peter writes, And here again, he's wanting to encourage the church by telling them that the judgment of these false teachers is certain, and so they need not fear. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. But we'll stop there because the second part of verse 10 picks up on the next section that we'll cover next week. This is the Lord's word, and it's good for us, so let's, let's dig in. I'm going to give you my outline up front, and then we're going to work our way back through this text. I think in this passage, we see two truths, and then to help us understand these two truths, the, the Lord, through Peter, gives us two examples. So two truths and two examples. Here they are, up front, before we work through it. Two truths. One, the Lord will judge the unrighteous. There's no doubt about that. In the context of the unrighteous here is specifically the false teachers, but certainly this applies to all that do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will judge the unrighteous. Secondly, the Lord will rescue the godly from their trials, specifically, Peter says. The Lord will rescue the godly. And then two examples of these two truths is Noah and the flood, and then Lot, his nephew, in Sodom and Gomorrah. So as we work through this text, we're going to really go back into Genesis a good bit, and we're going to read and summarize the stories of Lot and Sodom in Genesis. And as we do that, let's remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so these stories that are recorded of us, these factual events of Noah and Lot, and all of their many manifold purposes and the purposes of God and redemption, part of it is to encourage us so that we might have endurance and have hope in our setting. So let's look again in our text, starting in verse 4. So I said two examples, but really there's three. There's a, there's a first example even before Noah and Lot, and it's the example of these angels that sin. So let's look at verse 4. 
So here is Peter's logic. He's saying, if God didn't spare these people, these angels and this fallen world in the days of Noah and Lot, then he's not going to spare these false teachers. So you can be certain that they will get what they deserve. So hang in there because God knows how to rescue his people. That's the point of this passage. So verse 4, Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So, and he's going to continue on. Then he knows how to, how to rescue his people. He will judge them. So what's he saying here in verse 4? What's he referring to? In, in, in verse 4 here, Peter is referring to this scene in the Old Testament. I think at the beginning of Genesis 6 is what he's getting at. When there was this description of these sons of God who most commentators think were angels that usurped, they, they, they went outside of the limitations that God gave them and came down to earth and actually mingled with the daughters of men. It's a strange and spectacular story where these angels rebelled against God and actually mingled in relations with human women and they rebelled against God and God judged them for that. And we see this also alluded to in Jude, this short letter right before the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation. Listen to how Jude, and Jude, by the way, this short one-chapter letter, much of, it, much of it is very similar to 2 Peter, but listen to Jude, verse 3 through 6. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what, that's what we're doing right here. So we are contending for the faith in a dark age. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that sounds a lot like what we read last week about these false teachers who are creeping in, dragging people away. Verse 5, now I want you to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he's referring to the Exodus, and notice how he's saying that it's actually Christ, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who doesn't in human form show up until the New Testament, but it's Christ who's doing the saving through the leadership of Moses and leading God's people out of captivity through the Red Sea, out of Egyptian captivity. And then verse 6, it says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, until the judgment of the great day. So I think he's referring there to what we just read in verse 4 in 2 Peter chapter 2, that there were these angels who, as Jude describes it, did not stay within their position of authority. They left their proper, proper dwelling. And in the beginning of Genesis 6, we read about these angels that seemed to mingle with these human daughters, and they rebelled against God, and it was just a total chaos. And the point here is that this is being used as an example by Peter that God will surely judge these angels. But notice here that these angels sinned, and now they are fallen angels, and they are kept in eternal chains. The point is, is that God will judge even these rebellious, glorious, angelic beings. And if he's done that, then he will not spare false teachers. But now let's keep going in verse 5. The, the, the things that I think are probably a little bit more easy for us to apply to our own lives. Noah and the flood. Verse 5, his first example. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the first example is Noah and the flood. So let's go. Keep a thumb there in 2 Peter, and let's go to Genesis chapter 6, and let's, let's remind ourselves of what the story of the world was during the time of the flood. Genesis chapter 6. I'll read a little bit out of that chapter, starting in verse 5. This is right after that scene where these angels came and mingled with the daughters of men. And then in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, 
and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's an important verse 8. Surely you remember four years ago when we went through Genesis and I preached on that verse. (laughs) Surely you remember that. But that's important language there, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that implicit in verse 8 is not that Noah was somehow inherently righteous because all, all the world, back then and now, inherit the sin nature of our first father Adam, our first father Adam. But Noah found favor. There's unmerited, unconditional grace that God gives Noah that produces in him a kind of righteousness that we'll see later on in the chapter. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. Make yourself, therefore, an ark of gopher wood. And the rest of chapter 6 is a description of Noah's obedience with, with very detailed instructions about this ark that Noah was supposed to build. And it took him, the, the, the Bible doesn't really specify how long it took him. Some people speculate it was about 120 years. That's not really clear in the text. It at least took a couple decades. And he's building this huge boat on dry land. And can you imagine the ridicule that he faced because of his obedience to God in the midst of a week? This was not the sort of Bible Belt South back in the 1950s, which was relatively uh, uh, agreeable towards God's lordship over the world. This is a hostile world, and Noah, in the middle of dry land, is building a huge boat, and he's doing this over the course of decades. Just consider the resolve that it would have taken Moses, or it would have taken Noah to build this this ark. And then in verse 22 of, of chapter 6, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Again, can you just see him trotting the animals onto the ark and just to fall, people around him scoffing him? I mean, just who is this crazy guy, Noah? For in seven days, God's saying, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, what's always been remarkable to me about this flood narrative in the Old Testament, which was a true story, this is, this is something we paint on children's nursery walls, which I think is a wonderful thing to do, but we paint all the animals getting onto the boat, but we don't paint like all the dead corpses of humanity, I mean, just floating in the, I mean, this is a, this is a, the rest of chapter 7 is horrible. And this is the point that Peter is making. He's referring back to this time when God in his holiness is so serious about his holiness and the rebellion of the world. And Peter is wanting to encourage the church with this scene that God will not be mocked. God will save his people. God will rescue Noah. God will preserve his purposes on the earth. And God will, his purposes will not be thwarted. And there's this incredible scene then of the flood and death and destruction and the miraculous preservation of Noah. What's this a picture of? Well, it's a picture of the gospel. The ark itself is a kind of foreshadowing 
of Christ. In fact, in, 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 back in, in, in Peter, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. So go all the way back to Peter. We're in 2 Peter, but go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to see this connection that Peter even makes, how the ark in Noah's day is a kind of Old Testament shadow. It's meant to not just be this incredible, miraculous story, but it's meant, as we read the Bible now backwards, as we have the lens of the New Testament, it's meant for us to be able to see, oh, this is what God was doing in the Old Testament. He was actually pointing forward to the true and eternal ark, which is Christ, which saves people from God's wrath, which is pictured as a flood. So let me read in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the heart of the gospel, that he might bring us to God. If you're a Christian, how did you get there? Not because of your righteousness, because of what Christ has done for you on the cross and because he made you alive and gave you faith so that you might trust in him. And so if you're not yet a believer and you're wondering, how do I become a believer? Do I have to, do I have to try hard enough or be good or resolve to do these things? No, you are unrighteous. And the only hope that you have is that God would take your dead, unrighteous heart like he's done for all of us that are followers of Jesus and make you alive so that you would not trust in yourself, but you would trust in what Jesus has done on the cross to bring you, to reconcile to you to God. And he did that by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in his resurrection in the spirit. In verse 19, in which he went, listen to this, so this is speaking of Jesus, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what's that verse saying? Well, there's several historic interpretations, but I think this verse is either saying that God, that Christ is working, ministering through Noah, preaching to a fallen world during his day. That's, I think, with a reference, whether these spirits in prisons are referring to these fallen angels or just the fallen humanity, either one of those two or both, that I think what this text is clearly saying is that Peter is linking the gospel message of Christ in an Old Testament shadow form as being preached through Moses to the fallen world around him when, in, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So as Noah was standing, see this picture, as Noah is obeying God faithfully, running counter to a world that hated God, that despised his righteousness, as Noah is hammering every little piece of wood together, it was like a gospel presentation to the world to say that you can only be safe if you trust in God because God will surely judge. And the building of the ark was like a gospel presentation that this is the way of safety because judgment is coming. And that's what Peter's saying here. And then he says in verse 21, baptism I want you to see this link. It's beautiful. This will help you understand the Old Testament and how the Bible fits together. Baptism, now the new covenant baptism of a believer in Jesus, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, is not that baptism actually saves you, but that your appeal, the faith that God has given in the resurrection of Jesus through his work is what saves you, and that's signified by baptism. What's going on in baptism? Whenever we baptize somebody here in this pool, it's not just some strange Christian ritual. It's meant to signify something. The water of the flood in the Old Testament is a picture of God's wrath. You cannot survive in water, and the whole world perished under the water of God's wrath. And when we are baptized and when we say that we are trusting in Jesus, those baptism waters are a sign of God's judgment. And we go down into the waters with Christ who went down on the cross into the grave for us. Jesus bore the wrath, the waters of God's wrath for us on the cross. 
And he defeated them. He drank them dry. And he rose again in victory over the grave. And so baptism is a picture of how we are in Christ who has taken away. He's dried up the wrath of God for us. And he's, he's triumphed over it in the cross. And Peter is saying that Noah's ark is a kind of picture of the cross. And so as he rescued Noah, he has rescued you in the cross. That's what's going on here in verse 5. But here's a question before we move on to the second example of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Because remember what we read in Romans, that these, these, these Old Testament stories... I think primarily are pictures of the gospel, the work of Christ, but there's also much that we should learn from them, that we should, we should be encouraged and exhorted. And one question I have is I read the story of Moses' patience and obedience in a hostile world is, does my life, does our life, do we stand out in our day and culture like Noah stood out? Does anybody know that you're a believer? Many confessing believers, I think, in our culture, are addicted to the applause of the world and not to the obedience to God. God may not be calling us to build an ark, but He is calling us to stand firm against a fallen culture that will woo us slowly to swear our allegiance to its false teaching and theology. I mean, what you, I think, necessarily must believe as a Bible-believing Christian is now considered hate speech in America and will become increasingly more hostile. The world will become increasingly more hostile. We are living in a kind of days of Noah, in a sense. Will we stand out? So that's example number one. Now, example number two, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse six. Again, he's doing this if then. If, so if he's going to save Lot, how much more will he save us? So verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, put a little note there, put maybe just write, if you're a note taker, just sort of circle righteous Lot, because we're going to come back to that. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And then he goes on in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So the second example he gives us is Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's read about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and why Peter would use Lot as an example. So go to Genesis chapter 13. This is an incredible story. Lot is Abraham. At this time, he's called Abram, and he is Abram's nephew. And in chapter 12, Lot's father passed away, and so he lives with his uncle Abram. And Abram, at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, is called by God. This incredibly important scene where God, the world is fallen, Nobody's really following after God, and God comes down, and he calls one man, Abram, who becomes Abraham, and he says to Abraham, a great promise to him that I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And that really, that calling of a people becomes the seed that then eventually becomes Israel, that then eventually gives way to Christ, which becomes the people of God. So it can't really get much more important than the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That happens, and then Abraham and Lot, Abram again at this, so far at this point, they start to journey and go where God has called them to go into the promised land. And then in chapter 13, picking up on verse 10, chapter 13, I want you to get a picture of Lot's heart and his struggle with the world. And yet, even despite that, God rescued him. And so Lot is with his uncle Abram. There's some arguments between Lot's uh, herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen, and there's some conflict. And so they decide, you know what? Instead of our cow hands fighting each other, let's just kind of separate. There wasn't much ill will between Abram and Lot, but let's just kind of give each other a little bit of space. So you go this way, I'll go this way, and everything will be fine. So in verse 10, and Lot of chapter 13, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, so they're going to choose where they're going to go at this point. 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sees this land, which is Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's attracted to it. And it's almost like hints in the text that Lot kind of is selfishly wanting the best piece of land. My brother and I, when we were kids, used to bake cookies uh, all the time on summer days when we were, you know, home and we would, whoever got to bake the cookie would get to choose the batch of cookies. We had like a draft pick of cookies and, you know, whoever made them. And there was always this battle over choosing the biggest and the best cookie with the most chocolate chips in it. So you're kind of wanting the best for yourself. And that's what's going on in Lot's heart here. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, and there's a kind of shadow of how it's going to go badly for Lot. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that certainly takes shape in the coming chapter. So go to chapter 14. We're going to see that Lot finds himself now. He's, he's picked this piece of land that he thought was the best. He was attracted by all the things that he saw that were seemingly a better choice. He goes to it, and before long, he finds himself in trouble. So chapter 14 of Genesis, and there's a bunch of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names here, but let's get after it. Verse 1, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of El- Eleazar, Chedorlaomer. That's a good one, man. If you have a kid... That would be a great name. He was actually a wicked king, so don't name your kid Cheddar Lomer, but maybe like a dog that you don't like. That would just be a good name. Cheddar Lomer, king of Elam, and title king of Goam. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Ad- Adma. Shimaber, king of Zeboam. And the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So Chedorlaomer is like the king of kings. He's the bad. He's the big man, and they rebel against him. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Asher, Ashtaroth, Karnam, in the Zuzim and Ham, the Imen in Shava, Kirathim, <laughs> work that out on your own later, and the Horites in their hill country as a hill country of, of Seir as far as Elperon on the border of the wilderness. So there's this battle. They've rebelled against this tough guy king, and they're fighting against him. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Haz and Tamor. So again, here's the scene. We have this, this kind of strong man, Ketalomer, who has these other kings have rebelled against him. There's this great conflict. Verse 8, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, the king of Bela, that Azor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Listen to this. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's where Lot was living, and all their provisions and went their way. And listen to verse 12. They also took Lot, meaning into captivity, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So here's what's implicit in the text is Lot's, oh man, that looks good. That's the, that's the good life. I'm going to go there. But when he went there, it put him in a precarious position and he eventually finds himself in captivity by, at the hands of these wicked kings. And so what does God do? He knows how to rescue his people. So he gets word to Abram, starting in verse 13 of chapter 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 
318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against him by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobo, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women of the people. Now you can read that as just a historical scene about how well it went. Abraham rescued his nephew. Or you can piece it together with what Peter's doing here, how he's saying that the Lord knows how to rescue his people. And you can see Abram's rescue mission of his nephew Lot as a kind of shadow of the son who comes to rescue his people on the cross. Friends, see in this just shadows. This is what God does. We have been taken captive by the Sodom and Gomorrah that we live in. We loved it. We gave our heart to it. We didn't think it was going to go badly, but it did. And we find ourselves captive. And what does God do? He sends the captain of the Lord of hosts and he takes his men with him, his angels, in all of his victory on the cross. And he, he ransoms, he redeems, he rescues his people on the cross. That's what, that's what Peter is wanting to remind us of. But it doesn't just happen to Lot once. It happens again. Let's do this. Let's, let's just, just a little bit more in Genesis, and then we'll get back into our text. Genesis 18 is this incredible story. So somehow or another, Lot finds his way back to Sodom. Okay, so here's the deal. I mean, the Lord, this is just, this. as I was reading this, this just chastened me because the Lord will rescue us and we will go back to the pigsty, won't we? Isn't that what we do? And remember, remember when I said Mark verse 7 of our text that the Lord rescued righteous Lot? Well, Lot doesn't seem to be very righteous at this point. He seems to be kind of attracted to the world. He found himself in a fix in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham yanked him by the scruff of the neck out of that place. And then we get to chapter 18 and 19 of Genesis. And somehow or another, Lot has he's wandered his way back to the place that Abram had to rescue him from in the first place. So that's, that's, that's Lot, like us. And so in chapter 18, it's this incredible chapter, again, one of the most important chapters in Genesis. There's these three angels that come in the form of men, and they come to Abram's, Abraham's house, and they tell him, they remind him of this promise that God gave to Abraham and says that, there's, that your wife Sarah, even though she's advanced in years, is going to have this promised child that God promised you all the way back. And in fact, Sarah is overhearing this conversation because Abraham said, hey, we got three guests. Go, go make some food. Come on. And he's having a conversation with these three angels in the form of men. And they say, they remind him of this word, this promise of God. Your wife in her advanced years is going to have a child. And Sarah, he, overhearing, eavesdropping, laughs. And then God says to Abram, why did your wife laugh? And then Sarah, I love Sarah for this, has the audacity. At least she, she, she just says, I didn't laugh. She, she tells the Lord that she didn't laugh. And then God says, no, yes, you did. So, just, man. I mean, if, if you're going to sin, sin boldly, I guess, as Luther said. Just contradict the Lord to his face. I mean, I don't recommend it, but that's what's going on in chapter 18. And then these three men, that's what's the first part of chapter 18, then these three angels, with the Lord speaking through them, start talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, this wicked city. And they're saying, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do? Because these angels have come down to remind Abraham of the word of the Lord and to be agents of God's judgment against these wicked cities. And so that's the end of chapter 18, where these, these warrior angels are saying, we're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham intercedes. At the end of chapter 18, Abraham intercedes, and he says he knows in the back of his mind that his, his, his crazy nephew Lot is back in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying, oh, Lord, if there were 50 righteous in the city, would you spare it? Would you spare it for 40? And the Lord says, yes, I, I would. Would you spare it for 45? Lord, would you spare it for 30? How about 20? How about 10? Lord, if there are 10 righteous people, would you spare? So Abraham is interceding for this wicked city because he knows that his nephew is there with his family. 
And Abraham has this heart of compassion for these people and certainly a concern for his kinsman, his nephew, Lot. And he's pleading with God to relent of his judgment and to spare the righteous in the city. Friends, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of Christ interceding for us. And so what happens? Chapter 19 of Genesis, let's read. Then two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now you think if you had just a few chapters before got rescued from that terrible place, you wouldn't go back. But isn't that what we do? We go back. And Lot is back in Sodom. When Lot saw them, these two angels, he rose to meet them, appearing as men apparently, and bowed, him, bowed with his face to the earth and said, My lords, listen, this, this chapter is wicked. It's stark. It's stunning. But it's for our instruction. He says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed him strongly because he knew what these people were like. No, don't, don't, you, you don't want to do that. You don't want, you know, you don't want to go to that part of town. Uh-uh. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And you know what that means, friends. We have some children in here, but know, know that they're implicit in that is wickedness. That we may abuse them and ravage them in every wicked way. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And listen to this, listen to how Peter, he describes Lot as this righteous man. Listen to Lot's plan B. Listen to how he tries to appease the wickedness of his city. Verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot, meaning the angels, into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But, verse 16, he lingered. Despite all of this, Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him, them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I, all, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. That's the angel speaking to Lot. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city 
and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became, she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. What a scene. God rescues Lot despite himself. And yet, how does Peter describe Lot? He describes him as righteous Lot. I think that should encourage us. When I read about Lot, I see somebody who had more eyes for the world than he did obedience to God. And then when things are really going south, he offers up his daughters. But certainly he's in this place where he's vexed by the unrighteousness in which he's lived and yet God looks so graciously and redemptively on Lot that he inspires Peter to describe Lot as a righteous man even though Lot was lingering and toying with and longing for the world and he was amongst God's people and so God would not lose him. In fact, God through these men, these angels, grabs him by the scruff of his neck and pulls him out of Sodom and Gomorrah for a second time. Friends, what's the point? God knows how to rescue his people. And the strength of the rescue, and this is good news for feeble souls like us, the strength The the thing that the rescue hinges on is not Lot's strength or Lot's resolve or even Lot's righteousness, but on the grace of God that knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Friends, put that deep in your soul and be encouraged by it because there are people in this room who are in their own kind of Sodom and Gomorrah that has maybe been constructed by their own rebellion and sin. But if you are the Lord's, He will rescue you. Despite the fact that you linger again and again at your own personal Gomorrah. Don't let that be an excuse to linger. Let that inspire you to run for the hills of safety in the Lord. And he concludes here in verses 9 and 10. And this is really our text. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, doesn't he? And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So again, we conclude with these two truths. Truth number one, the Lord will judge the unrighteous. Know that that day's coming. And we're going to get into that in chapter three. The Lord knows how to bring judgment. The Lord knows how to work his righteousness. That day will come. And every day that the Lord postpones, every day that the Lord seems to be slow in bringing judgment to this world is not the Lord being slack in his promise, as we'll read in 2 Peter chapter 3, but it's actually the Lord in his mercy waiting to gather in the full number of his people that he has given to his son. And truth number two is that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to put that person in your life, to send you a text when you're in the middle of a moment of temptation. He knows how to make you miserable in your sin. He knows how to give you a phone call on that day when your heart is in despair. He knows how to bring you to a church that preaches the gospel. He knows how to put people around you that will snatch you from the fire. He knows. Consider, dear ones, as we read this text, the innumerable ways that the Lord has done this in our lives. And what should this produce in the lives of his people all of us who have our own sort of personal lot story, it should produce in us humble confidence in the grace of God that is stronger than my sin, and it should produce in us worship. We conclude 
at least this sermon with this psalm, Psalm 124. Let me read this, and then I'll pray. This psalm is a kind of picture of what we've just been reading. Psalm 124, verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, (laughs) let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who knows, who knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's rescued you from your sin. He's rescued you from your own personally constructed Sodom and Gomorrah. And whatever you are facing today, he knows how to rescue you from that trial. And he will surely do it. Now that isn't a promise of earthly prosperity. Maybe in the case, like we've just prayed for early this morning, of dear Pastor Andy Merritt, that rescue is entrance into his eternal reward. But the Lord, rescues his people from their trials. Dear ones, let that put steel in your spine as we face a chaotic world. And if you don't know Jesus, know this, and I say this with pastoral love in my heart towards you, that you, you are in an incredibly perilous place if you don't know Jesus. There is coming a flood. There is coming such a torrent of judgment water on you that there's no way you could breathe underneath it. You will surely drown. There is coming sulfur from heaven, a a, a kind of picture of God's judgment upon all of those that are outside of Christ on that day that there will not be one who stands on that day outside of Christ. And all of these incredible scenes in the Old Testament and this apocalyptic language in 2 Peter is meant to wake you up to the reality that God is holy and you are not. And your only hope is to get in the ark, to run to the hills. And that is Christ. That's Christ who bore the wrath of God, who who removed it from all those that would trust in him. Your only hope, your only true rescue from the trial of your own fallenness is to trust in Christ. And so, dear one, If that's not where your hope is, do that now. Do that now and be saved. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to to apply this text to our lives. Lord, use my words to bring life to dead hearts and steal in the spine of Christians for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.